I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the very beginning, very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And we want everybody to follow along as we look at God's Word. So these guys have some Bibles. Get their attention. If you'd like one, they'll get one to you. We will be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, but we're going to start looking at some passages in Genesis 1. And those Bibles that are being distributed are marked at Ephesians 6. And we are concluding very soon in the next few weeks our series through that book, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. Today we come to the last part of verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. But if you'll take a look at Genesis 1, we'll look at that in just a moment. One of the great contemporary hymns of the faith in Christ alone has this line. And he stands in victory, and sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Now, following the teaching of the Bible, we speak of Christ rising victoriously. And we refer to Satan as a defeated enemy, and thus a line like that in a hymn. He stands in victory since curse has lost its grip on me, on us. But that raises a question, if all of that is, is true, and it is, then why is there still a battle? If Christ is victorious, Satan is defeated, why is there still a battle after all? Why are we instructed yet, still, after Christ has come and died and risen and ascended, why are we told to continue to fight, to engage in spiritual warfare? Well, it's because although Satan is indeed defeated, he has not yet surrendered. His ultimate defeat, his final defeat is, as I've been saying over the last few weeks, inevitable. It is sure. It is going to happen. But he fights on in a losing and lost cause. And this tells you something about the nature of sin. The fact that Satan is defeated but continues to fight on tells you something about the nature of sin. Sin has a blinding effect. So that we fail to see what should be obvious. And the blind rage... Those words chosen carefully. The blind rage that Satan possesses causes him to fail to appreciate the hopelessness of his cause. And so at the very end of the Bible, third from the last chapter of the Bible, as human history is coming to a close, Revelation chapter 20 speaks of a time that we call the millennium. Millennium comes from the Latin for 1,000. It's a 1,000-year period in which Christ has returned, and Jesus is physically occupying His throne in Jerusalem. But to show you the blindness of sin, here's what the Bible says. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. And if you read on in that chapter, you will find that there are people who follow him. So here is Satan at the end of human history, having been bound for a thousand years. And he still fights on. 
sin has a blinding effect. You could say sin is really insane. You know, we, we define insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Satan keeps trying, even with Christ physically on the throne. And it is not then just Satan who has the insanity then of sin and the blindness that goes with it. But here's what the Bible says that he does. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Another way to look at this blinding, this inability to see things as they are, you can say it's insane. You could say sin is just, and if we have any children left in here, cover your ears, sin is just stupid. I've said stupid in a sermon before. I've been reprimanded by parents saying we tell our kids not to say stupid. And they say, but Pastor Ken says it all the time. But when I say that, it's not necessarily that we sinners are unintelligent. We're often highly intelligent. But it's that sin so obscures our vision that we do not employ our mental capacities properly. We don't see because we are spiritually blinded. And we become Christians when our eyes are opened. And for the very first time, we see God and ourselves and others and His world as they truly are. And the hymn writer John Newton captured this perfectly in that most well-known of all hymns, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now am found, was blind, but now I see. In daily life, this means that Christians and non-Christians can look at the very same thing and see it completely differently. We interpret the same facts in a radically different way. So take the area of science, for instance. Believers see the evidence of God's handiwork all over. We see everything that is in creation as His fingerprints. But unbelievers look at that same world and deny the obvious. And in fact, they have to take pains to deny the obvious, but they're perfectly willing to do that. Because sin makes otherwise intelligent people, and this is the Bible's word, it uses the word fool professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, Romans chapter 1 and verse 22. And so you take the super intelligent, Richard Dawkins, the British atheist evolutionist, who says this in his book. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. They give the appearance, but he's going to go on to say, in fact, you notice, can you see the name of his book is The Blind Watchmaker? There's really no design. It's all just appearance, says Richard Dawkins. And Nobel Prize winning biologist Francis Crick said this, 
Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed. <laughs> and you see, the reason they have to constantly keep that in mind is because for all the world, it looks like it was designed. But we can't believe that because the implications of believing that mean that we are now subject to the designer. And that messes up everything. The Bible, or excuse me, theologians call this the noetic effects of sin. It comes from the Greek word used in your New Testament for mind. Nous, noetic. It means the effects of sin on our minds. We don't see things clearly. We don't see things as they are. We don't think about things as we ought or as we were originally created to do. And we all have this problem. Not just intelligent scientists, but all of us, students, and lawyers, and accountants, and homemakers, and auto workers, and pastors. We are all left to ourselves in our own natural sinful blindness. We are all blind until Christ opens the eyes of our hearts. And that's why the Bible says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so in this situation, what is it, friends, that we need? If that's truly the deal, and it is, then what is it that we need? What will give the light that we need for the blindness that we all naturally possess? Well, it ain't going to come from within you. It's going to have to come from outside of you, is it not? If the problem is my own natural blindness because of my own natural sinfulness, then looking inside myself for the answer is a colossal mistake. We need something outside of ourselves that can shed light in the darkness that is our lives and our world. And thanks be to God, He has provided what we need. The Bible says this about the Bible. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God gave His Word in order to give us instruction, in order to give us light. We are in particular need of that light once sin has entered God's otherwise good world. God gave us His Word to guide us and He made us with the ability to understand that word and appropriate that word. And that's why I've asked you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see that. That at the very beginning, there is God and then God creates. And this God, the true and living God, who creates his world, including us, is a communicating God, a speaking God. In fact, it is by the power of His Word that the worlds are created. He speaks them into existence. And so in the third verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 and verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then you go throughout chapter 1, 
and the seven days of the six days of God's creation and the seventh day of rest. And you see in his creative activity, it is God speaking things into existence. Verse three, God said, let there be light. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And verse nine, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate night from day. Verse 20, and God said. And verse 24, and God said. And then verse 26, especially. And God said again, let us make man. But note how we make man. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, livestock over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now among all of God's creation, the crowning achievement of his creation week is that he makes man unique in his image. And one of those features of being made in the image of God is this God who speaks, this God who communicates, gives us the innate ability to receive his communication and to communicate both among ourselves and to God. And so verse 28 tells us that God speaks to them. God blessed them and said to them and then gives them instructions. And then you note down in chapter 2 and verse 16, We're given a detailed account in chapter 2 of the sixth day of creation and God making Adam and then giving him a helpmate in Eve. And then in verse 16, God speaks to Adam and says, and commanded the man, you're to eat, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God creates Eve And then we see in verse 23 of chapter 2, Adam's response. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So God is a communicating God. God, by His Word, creates the world and all that's in it. He creates mankind in His image, so that we can receive His communication and we can communicate to Him and to one another. All is good until the entry of a foreign voice. And you come to chapter 3. And verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And then these two words, He said. This is now the first time in human history that someone other than God has spoken to his creation. And the serpent now says, and he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We saw what God said in chapter 2 and verse 16. God does not stutter. God is very clear in his communication. He made the man and the woman to receive his communication, but now there is a foreign voice to throw confusion into the matter. Did God really say that? And then verse 2, the woman says to the serpent, and now there's a dialogue 
this communicating ability that God gave to his highest creatures designed for them to communicate with each other and to communicate to God and to receive his communication to them is now being used in an illicit way to speak to the deceiver. We all know what happened. They disobeyed God. And Adam and all of his progeny were plunged into sin. That includes you and me. And that is the beginning of the blindness. That's the beginning of our susceptibility to deceit and foolishness. Is when we heard the voice of a competing, a competitor with God. And we listened to that voice rather than to the truth that God communicates by His Word. Throughout the Bible, we are warned with regard to listening to other voices. One such warning is given in the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the end of that book, the last few verses, we're told this, the words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails that are given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. It's saying that the wise words given us in the Word of God are like firmly embedded nails that anchor our lives. So rather than wandering around in the darkness caused because of the blindness that results from sin, the Word of God anchors our lives. So that we're not futilely thrashing about, trying to find our way. Like firmly embedded nails. And it's a powerful message that's contained in the Word of God. Ecclesiastes 12 tells us. Because of its divine source. Given by one shepherd. You all see that on the screen. That means it's God's Word. It's not my Word. Not your Word. And we as preachers... And we as ambassadors of Christ, our job is to herald what He has said. Not get our own thoughts in it. Not tell people what we think. Not give people our opinion. A herald is one who brings a message from a king. And this is the king's message. And it is my duty, my glad duty, to herald it to you. And our glad duty to be ambassadors for King Jesus. Because it's a message from a divine being, God Almighty. And it's powerful because it has His unique authority. The last part of that passage says, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Speculation. Theories. That are contrary to the Word of God. Are to be avoided like the plague. Now, it's not reading books. It's not getting an education. That's not what's being warned against. But it is getting an education in those things that are contrary to the Word of God so that we are continuing to listen to the hiss and the voice of the serpent. Paul, the great apostle, was a highly educated man. He used his secular education at times. Acts chapter 17, when he spoke with Athenian philosophers at a place called Mars Hill, is one example of that. 
And so we are told now in Ephesians 6. Take a look, if you would, at Ephesians 6. In the sixth and final piece of armor that we are given in order to wage this battle that Satan continues to fight, though he is defeated, he enlists his followers, all those who are outside of Christ and who are blinded as is he. And we are given these weapons of warfare to engage in the struggle. And the sixth and final one is found at the end of verse 17 of chapter 6. We are told to take to ourselves the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, friends, why it is so important for us to have the sword. Because you see what the source of the problem is. The source of the problem is listening to contrary voices. The source of the problem is the blindness that results from listening to voices that contradict what God has told us. And so to counteract that in this spiritual warfare, God gives us this one offensive piece of armor. One. All the rest are defensive. You've got one piece of armor to put in your hand and take it to the enemy, and that's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is referred to as a sword in other places in Scripture. Famously, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. It says the Word of God is living and it's active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, friends, this is why, because the Word of God is so powerful, this is why when you go to work tomorrow and a co-worker asks you, what did you do this weekend? And you say, I attended church yesterday. And if you deign to say, you know, and our pastor was saying, they're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) I don't talk about politics or religion. Now, this will be the same guy or gal who will be happy to tell you everything they did on Friday night and Saturday night in more detail than you could have ever wanted. But you begin to talk about God, you begin to talk about the Word of God. And it's like a light being flicked on in a dark room and the insects start to scatter. It's the sword. It penetrates. People were made to know God's voice. They know the authority of that voice and do everything that they can to get away from it. And it's called the sword of the Spirit. Now, why the Spirit? I'm going to give you three reasons. Why this is called, why the Word of God, this piece of weaponry in our arsenal is called the Sword of the Spirit. Well, first of all, it's because the Spirit gave us the Word. You all know 2 Timothy 3.16 that says this, all Scripture is God-breathed. And those two words, God-breathed, are a compound of two Greek words, The one word is theonoustos. Theos means God. Noustos means spirit, breath, or wind. And so that's why it says it's God-breathed. We get pneumatic or pneumonia from noustos. And so the, the Word of God has come to us by the Spirit of God. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1 makes that very clear. 
that in the giving of Scripture, it says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit because it is the Spirit that gave us Scripture, that gave us the Word of God. Jesus said in John 6, John chapter 6, it's a long, very convicting chapter, 70 verses worth. And toward the end of this discourse, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, in response to the question that we sang earlier, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus says this, the Spirit gives life. And the words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. And so why is the Word of God called the sword of the Spirit? It's because the Spirit gave us the Word. Secondly, it's because the Spirit uses the Word to impart life. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and it came into existence. Do you understand that the book that you hold in your lap as the Word of God has the same power to bring things into existence that were not? It is by the power of the Word of God that spiritually dead sinners are brought to life. The Spirit uses the Word to give life. And that's why, as Pastor Matt read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Why is it called the sword of the Spirit? Because the Spirit gave us Scripture. And because the Spirit uses the Word to give life. And thirdly, because it is the Spirit that turns the light on so that we understand God's truth. The Spirit turns the light on for us so that we understand God's truth. We were made to understand it. We still understand it faintly, though Romans chapter 1 says in our sin we suppress the truth that we were made to know. And so it requires an intervention of the Spirit of God on our minds so that we see clearly what God has communicated and receive it and welcome it. The Spirit turns the light on to the truth that we have in the Word. It's an extended passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that begins this way. No one knows the thoughts of God except, notice, the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And Paul, who wrote this, says, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. And he goes on to say, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But notice this. But we have the mind of Christ. And how is it that we have that mind? 
because the Spirit has done a work on our mind so that we who formerly were blind can now see. The Spirit gave us the Word, uses the Word to give spiritual life and turns the light on to the truth that is in the Word. And so we have an outline for you in your program. And I still have time to get to that outline. And we started the outline last week. And we looked at the fifth of the six pieces of armor that's given in verse 17. It tells us to take to ourselves the helmet of salvation. And we saw that the helmet of salvation breeds confidence. And so you have that in your outline. And we have this confidence that we are saved and that we are being saved and that we will be saved. And into this confusion now that the Bible describes brought into our world and into us individually by sin, into this confusion and blindness that comes from listening to a foreign voice, God provides for us something else we must have in addition to the confidence. I say number two, we must have God-given certainty. God-given certainty. You see, Satan seeks to confuse. Did God really say? (laughs) And then God, by His Spirit, turns the light on in our minds when we come to Christ and we become certain of the truth that He originally gave us that has now become clouded because of sin. We are so certain that we are willing to stake our very lives on one piece of weaponry, (laughs) offensive weaponry, the Word of God. And we take that into our hands and we are willing now to do battle. To do battle with who? Well, immediately you say, well, Satan, and that's true. And Satan's emissaries, and that's true. But you know who the fight is really against after you come to Christ? It's against Ken. It's against me, the guy in the mirror. And here's the reason. Satan is this defeated foe, and he is powerless powerless unless I choose to give him a foothold. So I take the sword now to fight against what Satan tries to do in resurrecting temptation and sin from within me, my own remaining sin nature, even after I come to Christ. And that's why I say in your outline this, We have to have this God-given certainty now that comes to us from the true and certain and authoritative Word of God. And that certainty falls into two categories. The first is this. We have to have what I call reactive certainty. What Satan does now is tempt me by appealing to the sin that is within me. And I'm to use the Word of God to react to the attack of Satan seeking to take advantage of my sin nature. He thought he could do that with Jesus. But Jesus had no sin nature to which he could appeal. You remember he tempted Jesus. In Jesus' Jesus' temptation, do you all remember how Jesus reacted to that temptation? He used the sword of the Spirit. 
he used the word of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, here's what he said. It is written. Notice those three words, friends. Scripture, writing. It is written. And when Jesus would say those three words as he did often when he walked the earth, it is written, he was appealing to the authority of the word of God. It is written. Let me remind you, adversary Satan, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are to react to temptation with the word of God. We are to react to failing in temptation with the word of God. That is, when we fail to resist temptation, when we sin, we use the word of God to react to that. How do I know that? Here's what 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says in full. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and notice rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So four things are given, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. The word of God teaches us about God and his standard and his holy character and about ourselves and our own sin. And when, not if I sin, when I sin, I am taught that and convicted of that by the word of God, which is the second of the four items in the list, rebuking. That word translated rebuking is the same word for convicting. I am taught about God's character. I am taught about my own sinfulness. And as a result, I am rebuked. I am convicted. But God doesn't leave us there. If he puts a period there, we're in big trouble. But the third thing is correcting. And that means to cause to stand that which has fallen. And the word of God tells us what the remedy is when we sin. So that we, we can, it can be corrected. We can now stand again. The Bible tells us about confessing. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible contains instructions for discipline, that is training, in ongoing righteousness. And so we must have certainty that comes only from the Word of God that clears up the confusion brought by another voice, a foreign voice, that of the adversary, Satan. We must have reactive certainty, and then I say in your outline, we must have proactive certainty. It's not just that I use the sword when I sin, but I use the certainty of the truth and my belief in the Word of God, to keep me from sinning. Proactive certainty. That's why Jesus said this, sanctify them. By your truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them, that is. That word sanctify means set apart. Make them progressively different than they were and different from the world. Sanctify them. How? By your truth. What is truth? Your word. It is by the Word of God that you and I know what our Father wants and what pleases our Father. It is by getting to know God, our Father, through what He has written to us that I know what pleases Him and what displeases Him. I experienced this many times as a boy with my mom. My dad had died when I was 11. And so my growing up years were primarily with my mom. 
and getting to know my mom and her loving me and me loving her and her communicating to me and me hearing her communication let me know what pleased her and what displeased her. So that proactively I could make decisions about what I should do and should not do even when she was not around. The Bible says as much about the Word of God. That it has this proactive effect as we get to know what God is pleased with and displeased with. Psalm chapter 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Here the word of God is called His law, His statutes, precepts, commands, ordinances. And then the psalmist goes on to say this. All of these are more precious than gold. Than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? And so, Lord, forgive the things I don't even know about. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, things I do know about. And may they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So important is the Word of God, the Bible, to your spiritual life and the spiritual warfare that really centers on our susceptibility to sin because of our remaining sin nature. So important is the Bible. In that fight, that the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. Longest chapter in all of Scripture. And do you know what it is all about? the Bible. It is all about Scripture. In fact, it's written, it's laid out, Psalm 119, in the form of an acrostic, with each section representing a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 sections to Psalm 119, all in order of the Hebrew alphabet. And so, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph, and that is verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 119. And Beit, the second letter, is verses 9 through 16. And all the way the through, the 176 verses cover all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, here is what the Beit section, verses 9 through 16, say about the Word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart. Here's why. So that I might not sin against you proactively. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. He goes on to say, With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. And I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts, consider your ways, delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Dear friend, is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, central to your life?
If not, you have no chance against the enemy. You have one offensive weapon. It is what you need, aided by the Spirit who gave it. But it must be used. It must be used as directed. It must be used regularly every moment of every day. I'm going to close in just a bit. But you are favored, privileged, to be affiliated with a church that believes in the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Believes in it to such an extent that we want every person who comes here, ever comes here, to have the opportunity to know and learn the Word of God. We offer multiple vehicles for you to do that through our one-on-one discipleship program, through the courses that we offer in our midweek program. We offer a pathway for you to learn the Word of God. And so what will you do, friend, with the sword that God has placed in your hand? Will you avail yourself of it so it can be used reactively and proactively as God has intended? And the last point I want to make is this. The Bible is not just a rule book, not just a guidebook. It doesn't just have good lessons for life. In order to obey the Bible, in order to even want to know the Bible so that you can obey the Bible, you have to have the power that comes only from Jesus Christ. See, if it were just a rule book, you could buy it on Amazon, and just read it, and then just try to put it into practice. Ain't going to happen. The only way you can do that is by having the Spirit who gave it and whose sword it is resident in you, a relationship with God the Holy Spirit that only comes by the gift that Jesus Christ gives to those who come to Him. And so have you come to God through Jesus Christ and thereby received the gift of the Spirit who turns the light on as we read the Word of God using His Spirit to engage in spiritual warfare on our behalf. How do I do that? Recognize that you have the malady I talked about at the beginning. The blindness, the deception. The Bible summarizes it in a word called sin. You're a sinner. But Jesus has come to pay the penalty for your sin. And not just pay the penalty to save you in the past, but to rescue you from yourself in the present, as we saw last week. Christ died on the cross for you. Repent then of your sin. I'm going to follow you rather than go my own way. You receive Jesus Christ in your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And from your heart to God in your own words, there's no magic formula. You say, God, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ, God the Son, died to pay the penalty for my sin. I ask you to forgive me all of my sins, past and present and, yes, even future. That His blood will cover all of my sin. Lord, I give my life to You. I want to follow You. I bow before You as my Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. 
We thank you that it has power because it is no ordinary book. Because it is sourced in God Almighty, the true and living God. It has come to us by your Spirit. It is empowered and made active and applicable to us by your Spirit. And only those who have the Spirit of God can wield the Spirit's sword as intended. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who has died for us, who has lived for us, and has given us the gift of God the Spirit. Lord, I pray for anyone who is, has been born again by the Word of God, but has been of late neglecting the sword, the one offensive weapon that you have provided for us. And I pray that we are confessing that sin, and that we, that will be remedied right away. And I pray for any who came into this room without the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God is convicting their hearts and drawing them to the Savior. That He gives as He has to us the gift of the Spirit and you'll begin your renewal process from the inside out in them, causing them to want your precepts and your statutes found in your Word. Lord, glorify Yourself through every person here by our lips and our lives. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.